0: It's time for your weekly dose of Wayne's Comics!
1: Welcome to episode 252 of the Wayne's Comics Podcast, and it's a very special one, so I'm glad you're listening. What's turning into a yearly event is me getting to the New York Comic Con, and I was able to talk to some very special people at DC Comics, and you're going to hear those interviews during this episode. First up will be Shay Fontana from DC Superhero Girls, followed by Phil Jimenez, who does Superwoman, Tom King from Batman is next, and Joshua Williamson from The Flash will follow him. Then we get to Robert Venditti, who's writing Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps, and John Semper Jr., who's scripting Cyborg. Everything wraps up with my interview with John Ficarra from Mad Magazine, who has some interesting things to say about where the magazine's going in the future, and even has some comic related news to share. As always, there's a lot to get to, so let's get on with the show. Get you-
2: I'm talking right now with Shay Fontana, one of the creators behind DC Superhero Girls. How's it going with that? You just made a big announcement here at New York Comic Con.
3: Yeah, things have been going great. And we just announced that we are releasing our very first Digital First series, Past Times at Superhero High. And the first issue is out today, and it will be going on a bi-weekly basis.
2: That's great. This thing has really taken off. I remember last year when we had a little display up in the the lobby area. And now, man, it's doing really great. You're writing books. You're writing uh, comics. You're writing the show. What's it like to be kind of the head DC superhero girl?
3: It's been really fun and such a whirlwind. This last year has been just really exciting to see the actual content coming out and the dolls being available and the costumes and everything. And now we actually have little girls in their DC superhero girls outfits coming to Comic-Con. So it's really incredible to be able to actually share the things that we've been working on so long with this new audience.
2: It's kind of interesting because I'm a big believer in female lead characters and you've done some interesting things with the characters and I'm particularly interested in like Barbara Gordon who I think she started out as Oracle and then became Batgirl with a hoodie on and things like that. You've updated the characters. Was that really important for you to do that with the characters to make sure that they were like modern day people that today's mostly kids I guess listen to this and watch this although I like to watch it too. Was it important to update the characters that way?
3: Absolutely. So DC Superhero Girls is an entirely new universe. We're setting it in a high school where all of the characters like Wonder Woman and Harley they're all the same age so we don't have the continuity from the DC canon to worry about in that regard so it's really it's bringing these characters into the modern day when you have someone like Wonder Woman who's been around for 75 years and now we take all those pieces of her DNA that have made her so popular and so inspiring for all that time she's a great leader she's compassionate she has this sense of justice and we bring it into this 16 year old girl so now it's really fun and modern and she still has these kind of modern teenage problems that all the kids at superhero high are dealing with.
2: What's also interesting too is you have some of the villains in there too like Poison Ivy's in there, of course Harley Quinn who's in that gray area. Was it fun to play with those characters as well as the heroes?
3: Yeah it's really fun to look at the characters like a Poison Ivy, like Harley And think of what they would have been like if they had this really strong, supportive group of friends around them when they were in high school. Most of our characters, at least most of the characters in the DC universe, don't become superheroes until later on in life. So when we strip all of that away from their backstory and we insert this new backstory where they are together and they have this just great group of friends... their problems can be heard they have people they can talk to and instead of going into the way of super villainhood they're actually realizing that they can be heroic and one thing that's always been important to us was to show girls that they had the choice so you aren't bad because of who your parents are or where you were born or any of those things but every choice that you make makes you either a superhero or a supervillain.
2: It's kind of funny because Harley is one of these characters that stands out no matter where she is. She's one of the comedic people, the the, the comedy relief all the time. Is that fun to write for you? Because you're writing all these different aspects of it. And do you follow the comics much or do you kind of just develop your own continuity?
3: Um, I do follow the comics, but none of that impacts what we're doing on DC Superhero Girls. So it's really fun to take someone like Harley, and she's my favorite to write because she gets to have all the punchlines. She gets to be fun, and we have kind of a serious group of girls. You have Katana there, you have Wonder Woman and Batgirl, and they tend to be more serious people. And then to bring Harley into that mix is really fun to see how it shakes things up.
2: Well, it's kind of interesting because she was originated because of the Joker, and there's no sign of that in this. She's basically her own character.
3: Exactly. So it was very important to us to keep those male heroes that define their female counterparts out of this series. So we won't be seeing Superman or Batman because we wanted the females to take on those characteristics themselves and not be derivative of any of the male characters.
2: It's really important to me to see females like this, and it just seems to me like this show just maybe 10, 20 years ago, we might not have been able to do it as successfully. Does that mean things to you? I mean, as as somebody who's trying to help girls kind of come into their own, this show really goes a long way towards making that happen, I think.
3: Yeah, I'm writing the show that I would have wanted to see when I was a kid. So I want it to be something that's inspiring, something where kids of all sorts can see themselves on screen, we want to be very diverse and inclusive and make sure that everyone out there watching has a representation of themselves as a hero on screen.
2: I also enjoy the fact that characters like Bumblebee, who doesn't get a lot of attention, is in there. Did you seek out certain characters in DC Mythos?
3: There were a few, we started with a group of seven characters, that's Wonder Woman, Batgirl, Supergirl, Bumblebee, Harley Quinn, Poison Ivy, and Katana. And we wanted to make sure that group was diverse and inclusive. And then from there, we really have just grown out into a huge cast. I think right now there's been about 50 different characters that have been introduced in the animation and the graphic novels. And it is really important to us to bring some of those characters that haven't had a lot of play in other DC comics and bring them up as their own kind of heroes and to explore their backstories in ways we haven't seen before.
2: The whole idea of a high school is kind of fun to me, and basically everybody can relate to the fact that in their youth they all were in high schools, all of us, and so to see the heroes go through that, that also makes them a little more human and more relatable. Is it easier to write that, do you think, or do you prefer to write them as adults? Which way would you like to go with them? Obviously, you like doing the the girls. So how about uh, maybe somewhere down the road you might write them as adults
3: later on? Yeah, I would love the challenge of writing them as adults. My entire career, I've been really focused in the kids' world, so I haven't had a chance to write a lot for an adult audience, but I'd love to do that.
2: Okay. Anything that we should look forward to as far as the characters? Are there any characters you're planning to introduce that we should be kind of on the lookout for?
3: Yes. So there are several characters coming up that will be joining Superhero High. In our Hits and Myths graphic novel, which is out November 1st, our girls are going to go to the underworld, and they might meet a character down there who will soon be part of the Superhero High world. So there's a lot of characters out there. Basically, if there's a character that's a woman in the DC mythology that you love, we're going to be introducing her at some point.
2: Good. Now, are you going to get to introduce any characters that you made up?
3: Uh, Actually, right now, we're really focused on maintaining the continuity within the DC mythology. So every character that we use on screen is actually an existing comic book character. So I haven't added any new characters. DC has... 80 years now of characters to pull from, so we are having a lot of fun going back with people like Crazy Quill and Liberty Bell that haven't been around much lately, but pulling them out of the canon and bringing them into this new world.
2: Uh, that's quite a you know an honor to be able to do that. DC, did they just open the books and say, here, do what you want? Or did they have suggestions of which characters they wanted?
3: We have great executives working on this at DC who know the DC canon forwards and backwards. And they have really great suggestions for who we should be adding and what characters might fulfill specific roles that we're looking for. But it is very open. So every time I've had a character that I wanted to put in there, I've been able to put her in.
2: Is there any favorite? You said you like to write Harley because she's very fun. Are there other characters that you particularly like? I mean, when you got the chance to do it, you all of a sudden went, oh, I get to write this person. Was there one that particularly stood out to you?
3: Well, Batgirl was my favorite when I was a kid because she was a human and she used her brain to make herself a superhero. So I really love writing her. And I love her being able to stand on her own against these characters that can fly or have super strength. But even though she doesn't have those kind of superpowers, she's able to just be one of them.
2: She kind of evolved to, which I liked.
3: Yes, so when we did start the series, she wasn't a superhero yet, and she became a superhero through her dealings at Superhero High.
2: Well, it's a great show and great comics, and you're behind all this good stuff, so man, it's great to see you in charge and doing a wonderful job.
3: Thank you so much. It's been really fun to be part of this world.
2: talking right now with Phil Jimenez, one of the creators on Superwoman, in fact the main creator, artist and writer. How's it going today Phil?
0: It's going pretty well. I have a cold so forgive me
2: if I'm a little nasally. That's okay, I was right. So Superwoman, you haven't done a thing I expected so far in the first several issues. Are you going to keep surprising us like that? I hope so. My
0: intent is to surprise with every issue. It does make me think, I wonder what people did think they were going to get out of that book. But yes, my goal is to always make the end of every issue a surprise, a reason to come back, and probably not save every surprise for the last page.
2: Is it kind of daunting going into the Superman family? Because, you know, Superman's a tough character to write for. He's kind of moral, you know, you kind of have an idea what he's going to do. With Superwoman, we've got a brand new character as far as a superhero. Was that a fertile ground for you to go in and something that you could do so it was something different? Yes, I actually don't
0: think Superman is particularly difficult as a character or difficult to write, but that's because I believe in what Superman stands for, and I think it just requ- that's what it requires. With Superwoman, I have at least one character, maybe two, probably actually a handful of characters, who are all inspired by Superman, but they translate that inspiration in different ways. So for me, the fun thing is I have a bunch of characters who are good and smart and thoughtful and decent, but have very
2: different ideas of what it means to be super in Metropolis. And also women, and it's great to see like a super female lead like this. Did you like that challenge to make that, to have her go up against Superman? I see her as a compliment to Superman, not necessarily a a challenge to him, and, and a
0: compliment to Supergirl as well. The fun thing about playing with female characters, and I say this being highly aware of the responsibility of such a thing, is that I can only assume that they navigate the world slightly differently, and they would see being super as being different. And with these two characters, with Lois Lane and Lana Lang, I wanted to explore the idea of goodness and heroism through the lens of two women who might have very different ideas of what that means.
2: Well, they are very different, but the great thing is they're both superwomen. That's the fun part. Is that the way you wanted to do it from the start, was to basically have two characters that were kind of vying for the lead as far as our attention goes in the book?
0: My goal was to introduce two characters, two women who may or may not like each other, who have historically not been very good friends, but understood that by combining their power and their action they could do good in the world together it's a little bit of a throwback to that mean girls idea where these two characters they they know they might not like each other but that's not going to prevent them from being good to each other and from making the world a better place and so the thematically this entire book is about this that people who are actually okay we might not be friends but together we are more effective than we are apart
2: that's really good. That's kind of like, neat for that. Now, as far as villains go, going forward, I always fuss about Supergirl. They always put Superman villains against her. Are you going to develop their own Rogues Gallery or people that they can fight that are not necessarily, you know, Clark's villains?
0: I think that's what we've done now. So Lena Luthor appears is the the villain of our big arc, as are her army of strange, bizarre women who are. We'll figure out their origin in issue number three, or we'll see it, I should say. But the idea is, yes, of course, that the villains will be their own. They will not be cast-offs. Atomic Skull shows up. Atomic Skull is a traditional Superman villain. But it turns out we were able to find a new spin on him where he's actually not quite so villainous and might end up being an ally of these two women. And that actually excites me too, finding new ways to think about old characters. And somebody just brought up Metallo, and I should probably bring Metallo back.
2: Okay, it would be good. Is this series going to go on for a long time? Because sometimes, you know, there's many series going on. How long you planning to do Superwoman? Do you know?
0: So, I mean, that depends, I think, on sales and popularity and what we're doing. I had two years worth of stories planned out. We'll also see what happens with the rest of the Superman universe. It's a constantly moving and shifting thing. And I'm a monthly book trying to keep up with weekly books, which means I've had to modify my pace a little bit. It's one of the reasons I think I am putting so much in certain stories just to keep up with the books that are able to put out two issues a month. So we'll see. I really want our book to support, supplement, buttress, what's happening in the Superman universe, but be its own thing. So we'll see what happens in that universe and how it reflects on ours. But I think it'll be sales driven ultimately. Would you like to go buy monthly No. No. As a matter of fact, what I wish I could do, honestly, was put out four books a year. I wish I could do, like, four graphic novels a year. That would be perfect for me, but that's not the one we live in. We live in, what's two a month instead of two a year. I'm really happy for Emmanuel Lopuccino, who's my rotating artist. I put her through her paces. I feel terrible, but I think she's doing
2: amazing work. I hope she feels she's doing amazing work, too. Well, it's a great, fun book, and it's expanding the super universe, I think, in many ways, which is good. And again, I always think that the female characters, we need a lot more of them. So it's great to see you guys doing that.
0: I agree. I mean, except for steel, I think the book remains remarkably female-driven. My hope is that I'm doing justice to the women of those characters. I keep saying that all I have been doing, not all, but I am constantly asking questions of female readers, of women in my life, about how these characters behave. Are they authentic? Am I hitting the right beats? Do they make sense? I feel like that's my job and my duty to at least do that, if I want to expand that roster.
2: The old story was Bruce Timm couldn't draw female characters very well. He drew women like, uh, like sort of like ugly men, and so he brought in a woman to help him learn how to draw the female figure. That's hilarious. Yeah, which they did, so it's kind of funny. As far as like the story goes, do you consult women as far as like the story, the storyline, or is that... I consult women about behavior. It is my experience that
0: every woman who will tell me something... And it's something, it's, it's an experience they have because they navigate the world as women that I don't. So little things that I don't think about. And I think that it's in those little things that matter. We all talk about, I think, very broadly, like heroic ideals and the hero's journey, et cetera. But each of our journeys is hyper-dependent on the body that we're in, on who, like how we navigate the world. Male, female, person of color, old, young, thin, fat. like Whatever that is, it, it changes our journey. And it changes the way people work around us. So to the best of my ability, I have to be aware of that.
2: Now, I've got to ask you a question. You've got two superwomen in there. Is there any chance this book is going to be called Superwomen at some point?
0: I would love that. I'm not sure DC would love that. I think all these characters would be superwomen. I'm very much of that idea that all of these women could put an S on their chest and be super, I mean, one to or another, even if they don't have superpowers. I think being super is a state of mind. It's not a power or a costume.
2: I'm a little unclear on how Lois got the powers.
0: So there's a moment the death of Superman where the new 52 Superman seems to explode in a solar flare. If you look at the panel, that flare radiation affects both Lois and Lana.
2: Okay, so they're inheriting his powers. They're inheriting his
0: power. But as we can see, apparently it's too much for them. Their bodies were not able to process it. And so it seems that Lois did the same thing. She blew up in a solar fire
2: and it's very possible that Lana could do the same thing. Okay, but we've got more books in the future here coming, we so, so we might resolve that situation? We might.
1: <laughs>
2: but not for a little while. Okay. Well, that's good. I'd I love to be surprised, as I said. You- you- and you're doing wonderful things on it. It's great to open the book up and not have any idea what you're going to do. I, I hope I that continues. Well, like, the I- issue
0: that I'm working on right now is so crazy. I mean, I'm so behind, but... I'm so excited about it because I don't think anyone will have to be expecting what's in it.
2: Oh, man. I can't wait for that. That's great fun. Any other projects you're working on we should be aware of? Is this keeping you busy? This is my life. I have nothing else in comics right now. And the other projects I'll announce next year, most likely. But this right now is my gig. We're doing a great job. I can't wait for the next issue to come out. And, you know, please keep it up. Thank you. Thank you very much. And it's f- talking to you. And feel better, too.
0: Thank you. Oh, my God. Where's my tea? <laughs>
2: Thank you. As a Batman fan, it's great to talk to the writer of Batman, and that's Tom King. How are you doing today, Tom? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for interviewing me, man. It means a ton. It's really great to talk with you. Now, they just asked you a DC All Access just before this, but I've got to ask you, too. What's the reaction been to your writing on it? Because I've seen lines at Baltimore for you to get your autograph. The sales have been really good. How do you feel about the reaction you've been getting as Batman writer? It's crazy, man. You don't understand, like...
4: I wrote a novel for Simon Schuster that nobody bought and I used to put a bunch of boxes in the back of my trunk of my car and drive around to con to con begging to get in the door so I could hand sell this book and people would walk by me and very politely ignore me for con after con after con and now to go and I sit down and like align forms and people like want me to be there and they want me to be there for this stuff I mean, it's it's another world, man. It's crazy. I used to be the guy in line. I met Scott Snyder by waiting in line for an hour to to meet him for the first time. So,
2: I don't know. It's it's, it's weird to be on this side of the curtain, you know? It must be interesting because Scott recommended you to do this, as I understand it. Yeah, I fooled them all. (laughs) Now, why don't you talk to us a little bit about your idea of who Batman is? Because Batman was always very dark, and now he's kind of in between. Is that the way you see him, as somebody who's in between dark and light?
4: I do. I, I my idea of Batman the thing I keep coming back to is the idea of his mortality and the idea that he's willing to die for us unlike other superheroes like Superman there's something immortal about him there's something godly same with Wonder Woman there's something that will last forever but Batman is just a human I mean it's just, there's just between him and the world is just a, like some fabric you know it's not powers it's not anything it's in it that idea that idea that he's risking death and that he's constantly facing that and that he knows it I think that's at the core of the character. And I think that can be both a dark and light thing. It's it's dark in the fact that I feel that in his heart, when his parents died, he died a little bit. And he sort of feels he escaped death. But it can be light, too, because the idea is because of that death, because he realizes that he's dedicated himself to a better cause. He didn't just retreat
2: into himself. He tried to save the world. So it's both things at once. That's great talk about writing bi-monthly how's that been for you because that's kind of new for dc they haven't done that very much and now you're writing bi-monthly of course you're interrupted right now by the night of the monster although you're working with steve orlando on that what's it like to write a bi-monthly comic
4: that was nice steve gave me a bit of a break he took the lead in those monster Man issues i like it i mean it's, it's going very well i mean it's easy for me because we set this up way ahead of time and we did it well so what worries me most, like, I'm a writer. I'll write what needs to be written, and I'll write it well. What worries me most is the art and getting that done and making sure that we don't give the customers a cruddy product and that they're looking at art from an artist they never heard with three different inkers and Batman's looking different. That's, that, that's the terrible part. But F- Finch, the, maybe the be- one of the best artists in comics, some of the most detailed artists in comics, did five issues in a row without missing a beat two weeks at a time. And then we're taking this little break, and then Mikkel Yanin, who's going to be the next Jim Lee is gonna do five issues in a row they're all done and then we take a little two issue break and then finch will come on for another five so our art team is on time and getting it done so at the end of the day you're gonna get from a first year we're not gonna miss one deadline and you'll get three trades each with consistent art so that's crazy right it's really good nobody, that's all, what nobody do. else in dc is doing that i think we should say that that what respect it is to finch and mikhail that they're the only books in the monthly shipment where they're doing the full trades for everyone and on Batman maybe the hardest book to draw because the most eyes are on it. So those guys are they're doing something unprecedented.
2: Well, it's really great. I mean, you get given David Finch to work with and stuff like that. That's that you know, you're starting right off at the top of the of the heap. Did you ask for him? They give you him to you. How did that work? They matched us. I, dude, I I didn't have
4: the balls. Can I say balls in
2: your podcast?
4: I didn't have the balls to ask for Finch, man. It's like Finch is one of the guys that got me back into comics. Like most of the people in my generation, I sort of fell out of comics in the late 90s, early 2000s, and then sort of came back when the Bendis, Miller, sort of BKV, that sort of revolution of creators came in. And just his work on New Avengers, it blew my mind. When that stuff, I'm allowed to say New... Oh, don't tell DC I said New Avengers, but... I mean, I-, I felt like at that point, he was redefining what beautiful comics look like and what they could be, both in terms of like, he's like, look, this is a 90s style but with a modern take on that and then he, he's kept that and made it better man he's, he's, he's fantastic he's amazing and what I really like about Finch is that we've got Jordi Blair color in him and so you can sometimes when he's, he's color some of his lines are lost because the, he goes for big action pieces and they want it to be rendered more but Jordy sort of draws off and she lets his line shine through and you can see that nobody puts more lines and care into his pages than David and so yeah we were matched but it was a good match
2: now, talk about the new apprentice. I, is the word I want you? We don't want to say sidekick. How's he going to play into Batman? Scene, I kind of like that. that for no, me? Please do don't it. it <laughs> That's that. oh, all right. I, I'm happy to give something to contribute to Batman. Well, I'd want to call him the apprentice, but then no, that wouldn't go. Well. I would not this time. We wouldn't do that. But, <laughs> but as far as his character and he's starting an evolution, do you guys have planned out where you want him to go? Yeah, we've got big
4: plans for Duke. I mean, we have a specific role that when he comes on the other side of all this, he's going to occupy in the world of Gotham that I think is going to make him... I feel like the Trinity will always stand as a Trinity, but he'll be right there next to the Nightwing and those guys. And I think it's going to be, it's going to be great. What we're doing with Duke is, for people who want is In my book, I'm an old Batman fan, so I love how Tim started when he was in the cave for a while. And he sort of got used to the character before he came out as Batman. So that's what we have is Duke in the cave. In Scott's book, All-Star Batman, that's the training. And so as you see that training move, that's when he's going to come out of the cave. Because you can't just launch. I mean, I know he was in We Are Robin, but you can't just launch as Batman's partner from nothing. So we wanted to
2: make it a little more realistic than that. So that training will happen, then you'll see Duke escape into the world. And, of course, now we've got to ask, since you brought up Robin, what about Damian Wayne? Is he going to appear in the comic, or is he going to be busy with Teen Titans?
4: Damian Wayne is in issue is in the final arc, the I Am Bane arc. Damien, Jason, and Dick will all appear and Duke. And uh, I'm a former writer. People don't know, I'm, I, I used to write Grayson. I wrote Robin War. And so when I got to bring those characters back and do that dynamic again, it was kind of like I felt at home. I don't know. So I was like, I, I know how to make those guys act. I was like, oh, this is why they hired me as the Batman writer. I, I have that skill, too. And it's just so much fun to go back to that Bat family and see them with... with I wrote this one scene. It's one of my favorite scenes I've ever written. It's Batman and the four kids without Tim. Like, there's an empty seat at the table. But just having a meal and, and being brothers and being a father. And I love it. I love writing that stuff. Because Batman, at, at the end of the day, on some level, as weird and dark as it is, it's about family. It's about getting through with family.
2: So, Okay, now you've got a new storyline coming up. Do you want to tell us about that? Uh, the name of it and what, uh, how many issues it's going to be and what it's about?
4: Yeah, um, I couldn't be more proud of this storyline. I loved the first one. I think we, we went, but I think this one's even better. So I think it's always good to best yourself. So our first arc was I Am Gotham. The second one's called I Am Suicide. And, I mean, it's a pretty simple concept. Bane has kidnapped Psycho Pirate. Batman needs Psycho Pirate to to cure Gotham Girl. But Bane is in Santa Prisca. He's in his own country. He's in the world's worst prison. And Batman needs to break in, but it's illegal. So he goes to Arkham, and he recruits his own suicide squad from his worst enemies. And Batman and the Suicide Squad invade Santa Prisca to get Bane wow how many issues is that going to be? that'll be five issues and it'll be with Mikael and Art and it'll be like when you read X-Men in the 90's you'll, you'll never look at Batman the same after you see what does
2: now of course Sheriff of Babylon's really good too is there more of that coming? yeah
4: we wrapped up the first season I wrote this trilogy of books Vision, Omega Man and Sheriff and they're all finished now I call it the Best Intentions Trilogy And then the only one that's going to go on will be Sheriff. We'll have a second season. After a little while, we're doing a break for a a special project. We're doing something
2: huge, and then we're going to come back to Sheriff. Well, Tom, keep up the great work. It's great fun. I enjoy Batman, and I can't wait to see what you got to tell us for the rest of the story.
4: Well, let me just take a chance to thank the fans. I know I'm new to this. I know going from Scott to me is a tough thing, and I I just thank you all for coming with me. I appreciate it. I'm nothing but grateful. Well, thank you. Thanks, man.
2: It's great to welcome back to the podcast Joshua Williamson, who these days is writing The Flash. How are you doing, Joshua? I'm good, man. How are you doing? Good. I just have to say something about your comic that I haven't said many times about a comic. Oh my God, man. I mean, The Flash is just, between your book and the show and the movie coming on, this is like a golden era for The Flash. And I understand you're a fan, and that's why you were happy to get the book. <laughs>
5: yeah, of course. I mean, I feel like it's the best time to be a DC fan, but it's also a great time to be a Flash fan. I mean, like, I've been a Flash fan, fan my whole life. And there's so much cool stuff coming out. You know, we have the book, which, I mean, I toot my own horn, but I'm very happy with the work we're doing on the book. And then, yeah, the TV show, like, I'm a huge fan of the TV show, and I'm excited for the movie. Like, there's a lot of really cool Flash stuff coming out. And I I think that's one of the reasons why the book has been doing so well. I think there was a really strong energy for the Flash. And so when we were able to do Flash Rebirth and Flash Number 1, I think it really helped us in that time, because the energy was there because of the TV show and the excitement for the movie.
2: I understand from what i read, you've been a long-term fan of The Flash, too, but did you have to fight to get the book? Did you propose? How did that happen that you got the book?
5: I knew I wanted to write The Flash, and it was something that I'd wanted to do for a long time, and about, it was in the spring of 2005, it it came up, right? Like, somebody mentioned, like, hey, you should write The Flash, and I was like, I don't think that's ever going to happen, and I talked to DC a little bit about it, and I wasn't really sure if it was going to happen, and then I went to them, and I pitched them an idea on it, and they actually said no at the time, San Diego Comic-Con 2005. And I went and I said, this is an idea I have. And they were like, no, we don't like the idea. We like your passion for it. We can tell you like the character, but it's not working. And they explained why it wasn't working. So three months later at New York Comic Con last year, I met with them again, and I was like, here, I thought about what you said, and here's my answer. And I gave them my answers and what I was thinking about doing, what I liked, and they loved it. And they were like, all right, cool, we'll want you coming out of the offices, and we'll see if we can make this work. And so started working on it. You know, but It was one of those things where it was like right timing, and I had an idea they liked, you wow. know, and they could tell I was passionate about it, you know. And I didn't, I didn't take the rejection that had happened earlier, you know, and keep laying down. I, I came back and was like, "So what you said? And here's what I'm thinking. Here's my answer." And then they liked it a lot.
2: So that's good advice for somebody who's a writer to keep coming back and doing
5: that. Yeah, you should learn from it. You should always learn from the rejections. It's just an opportunity to figure something out, you know.
2: The thing that gets me about this more than anything is that it wasn't that long ago that the Flash was canceled because he was too powerful and nobody could think of anything to do with him. And now look at what you're doing, and the show is doing it. It just goes to show that the, a character like that, if you have a good idea, with the basic character, you can make the Barry Allen very likable. You can make things happen that's really interesting. And the, Godspeed, man, for us, a Zoom-level character doing stuff that the Flash never thought of doing. When it comes to like coming up with the powers and stuff like that and the things that he's doing, did you have that concept in mind that he'd be able to do things that the Flash had concede of?
5: yeah definitely I mean it was a thing where when we started working on his character I wanted to show him just doing stuff that Barry would never do it's not that Barry couldn't do he would never do that stuff and I think that's a big part of what Godspeed character is about is that he will push and go further than Barry and so it was very much on my mind in the early development of it and it was like those scenes in issue 7 where he you know grabs that guy and faces him the a wall and lets go and he punches that guy's head off and he does all that, and shakes that guy until he dies. Like, all that stuff are things we thought about from the very beginning. Of, like, these are things we're going to have Godspeed do throughout this series. It was in there. I mean, we, I'm really glad we were able to create Godspeed, because I think he has helped a lot with the book, you know? And it's really sold it to people. He got people excited about the book again. And I wanted to show someone who was a moral opposite to Barry. And that was the thing it was about Barry, not just the Flash. I mean, and the thing with the, with, with the Flash is... And Barry is Barry is a hero regardless of the powers, right? Even if he took the powers away from Barry, he would still be a hero. Like, he would still go out and do things, try to save lives and help people. And so what I wanted to do was, I wanted to put him in a position where he had to question that, right? He had to question whether or not he was right for this job. Why is he the best Flash? But to do that, I needed a character that would do that for him. And that's what August, yeah, that's what Godspeed was all about, was someone who knew Barry and was able to, to question who Barry was. So kind of act as the reader in some ways. And to me, that's really where the book came together. Like, I love writing Godspeed and Barry talking. Like, them either arguing or just talking are my favorite scenes in the book throughout every issue. And issue 8 comes out, and was a big scene. That Obviously, a lot about that is them talking. And they fight, but there's talking. And it's like, those are the things I love writing up all characters because it allows me to explore those parts of Barry through Godspeed.
2: Now, what's really interesting to me, too, is that like Green Lantern for a long time was the same thing. They didn't know what to do with them. All of a sudden, Jeff Johns comes along, and, he's a, and not only does he have more than one Green Lantern, he's got like multiple-color Green lanterns all, lanterns all over the place. And you have, instead of just having one Speedster and, and let's like, say, Zoom or something, you've developed all these other Speedsters going along, which a lot of people were like, you can't do that because there's just not enough for them to do And yet. I think you've turned it into a real plus to have those characters doing that, and then being trained and things like that. Where did the idea come from to have multiple speeds? Well,
5: one thing I want to say is that, you know, part of doing these books is you want to build on the mythology. You want to build and you want to add to it. You know, you want to be able to continue. If you're always looking back and always maintaining status quo, you're never making, it's not about just making an impact. You just want to build on them and, and let these characters grow, and that's... That, Last year, before I was writing it, I originally did have the idea of, you know what, I'm just going to just bury no other speedsters, just, just a book about just him, no other speedsters. And I started developing it, and then I realized I was wrong. I was wrong that I needed to go the opposite and have a bunch, right? Go the opposite, the extreme, because everyone I talked to was like, yeah, no more speedsters, no more speedsters, no more speedsters. And I was like, no, so that's the expected thing, right? Let's do the unexpected, let's do a twist, and have a bunch, right? That hasn't been done. But here's also the thing: I'm a big fan. Of Mark Wade's Flash, and you can go back and look at Mark Wade's Flash. He had a ton of spaces there. There was Max and Johnny and Jesse, you know, and there was Impulse, and then there was John Fox, and then he had. I mean, there's this great Phil Jimenez drawing that he did that basically encapsulates Mark Wade's Flash run, and there's like a million spaces on this thing, you know. It's, there's a ton. There was Savitar, you know, and he kept adding to it. And I was like, that's what I want to do, you know. It's something Mark Wade really did really well, and it's not just about. The Flash is about the Flash family and it's like to have that family you have that multiple speedsters. That's a big part of his mythology is a Flash family and so that's why I was like no I want to add. I want to build and I want to build on the mythology and that's one thing that Jeff did really well with Green Lantern was he came in and he built on the mythology, you know he made it through multiple rings and there was a history there and that's why I did that on the Flash. I wanted to build on that mythology and that's what we're going to keep doing with it, you know, we're going to keep building.
2: Oh, man, I can't wait to hear what that's all about, uh, the things in the future. It's so fascinating to me because when somebody says you can't do that, it's almost like a challenge to like, writers like you that say you can do it if you do it this way. What made you change your mind in it? Was there a point at which you realized that you can do that and go with the multiple flashes?
5: I think I recognized it while I was working on it. You know, It was just that moment where I was like, this is the expected. This is the, uh, the obvious thing to do. Ace to Do No More Species, and I realized that, and I was like, no, this isn't true to the character, and it's not true to the mythology or that world, you know, so I was like, no, I'm going to go the opposite of it. There's this saying, if all you do is listen to people telling you you can't do something, eventually you're going to find yourself doing nothing, and I really believe that. I believe that if, if, as a writer, as a creator, if you just constantly listen to people telling you, oh, you can't do that, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this, you can't do that, Everyone has different opinions, and everyone's gonna tell you another thing, you know? You imagine you're going down a road, and you got two people in the back of the car, right? And you get to a fork in the road, and there's one guy in the back going, Whatever you do, don't go left, you gotta go right. And the other guy says, Whatever you do, don't go right, you gotta go left. What do you do? You don't listen to them. That's what you do. You don't listen to them, and you figure it out. Because you keep listening to them telling you you can't go right, you can't go left, you're stuck, you're not going anywhere. You know, you can't let that get to you. You got to be able to figure it out and figure it out on your own.
2: Well, sounds like you got more surprises for us. I also got to write a review of Frostbite number one, which I really enjoyed. I thought that was a great book, too. Is that a miniseries series ongoing? How's that going to work? It's
5: a six issue miniseries, series, but we definitely built it into a world that if it did do well and we decided to come back to that world, we'd be able to. But yeah, the first is a six issues. But, you know, again, it's a big world and we're only seeing a small piece of that world at this time. So if things were going well, we'd be able to come back to it and do more.
2: Anything you can tell us about the Flash you're going to do in the future? Rala kind of hinted that there are big, unexpected things going to happen. Anything you can tease us with a little bit and not spoil?
5: Well, you know, in issue 9, we're doing the Kid Flash 2 Worlds. That's coming up, so the, you know, the adult Wally Watts is going to show up. There's going to be some cool teases in that issue about what's coming in the future. And then we're also doing the Shade is coming and Speed of Darkness. And then after that, we're doing a really cool uh, big storyline with some other villains returning.
2: What's it like to have an exclusive with DC? Does that help you as far as, like, creativity things? Because you also have Vertigo if you want to do a story that's not necessarily DC. Oh, and by the way, you're doing Justice League and Suicide Squad. I was happy yeah. to hear that. How's that going to do?
5: I mean, it's been a lot of fun. I really like writing it. I mean, it definitely is a lot about fighting, but there is a, a, a through line through the book with certain characters, and we're telling the story about redemption and corruption in the DC universe using these characters, and this big story we're doing where a lot of villains and heroes are fighting each other. With the exclusive... It's been great. I mean, really, it's something I wanted uh, when I was younger, and I wasn't sure if it was going to be possible. We had talked about it a little bit off and on, and I really wasn't sure if it was going to work out or not. But it was something, as a DC fan my whole life, it was something I wanted as you know, as a fan and as a creator. And it also opens a lot of avenues for me, a lot of possibilities, opportunities. Like, I wouldn't have done Justice League Suicide Squad if it wasn't for the exclusive. But, you know, you take all that, and it allows me to have some freedom, you know, and I can take risks. And it allows me to, to sit back and just create You know, when you're a freelancer, you spend a lot of time looking for jobs. You know, half your day is working on a comic, and then half your day is looking for the next comic to work on. And this gave me an opportunity to just sit back and, you know, make comics.
2: Well, I can't wait, because you're making great comics. And, you know, Josh, keep it up. Can't wait to read your stuff.
5: Thank you so much, man. I'm always happy when you read the stuff and, you you know, you talk about it online. It means a lot to me.
2: great to bring back to the podcast Robert Venditti who's doing Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps these days. How are you doing Robert? I'm doing well thank you
6: for having me on again I appreciate it.
2: I have to say my twin brother is a big Hal Jordan fan. He was in the Hal's Emerald Advancement Team and all that good stuff and he loves what you're doing with Hal Jordan. He really enjoys it and I enjoy it too but as a big Hal Jordan
6: guy he's really enjoying it. That's great to hear. You know I'm having such a great time working on this book. It's kind of hard. I I get so enthusiastic and and I'm so happy to be doing what I'm doing to have all the characters all in one spot where I can work with all the classic lanterns, you know, Guy, Hal, John, Kyle, you know, Sinestro, to be in the rebirth environment where it's very much about moving forward but also embracing all the legacy and the grand sort of tapestry of the DCU. And there aren't that many books that are out in the cosmic realm. Like, most of them are on Earth, so I'm kind of out in space and all that tapestry is ours to make use of and we're certainly doing that as we move beyond this first arc move into the next storyline i think people are going to be surprised by some of the concepts that we bring into play and also how we tie them back into Greenlander mythology as well so i'm really excited about it working with ethan and rafa has been phenomenal and uh, i'm 17 issues in already in terms of script so we've got a lot of stories in the bank
2: i don't know how you're going to top this first arc though you have put hell jordan in the worst possible place you can put him in You know, and fans of Hal Jordan are out there. some of them going, why is he beating him up so badly? But the truth is, obviously, you're going to bring him back up again from where he's at.
6: Yeah, and I I think that it's a a uniquely Hal story. I really have tried to look, because it is a big cast of characters. You've got the four Earth Lanterns, the four classic Earth Lanterns you have to deal with. I'm really trying to put them each in unique situations that highlight who they are as characters and why they're all good Green Lanterns, but also different in how they approach being a Green Lantern. And so for me... Hal thinking that he's going to go and attack Warworld and the entire Sinestro Corps by himself, that's a Hal story, you know? Guy Gardner being in a chair and Sinestro torturing him to try to get him to give up the location of the Green Lantern Corps, that's a Guy story. Because Guy is the guy you want in that chair because he's never going to crack. Like, if there's one thing he knows how to do, it's take a punch and take the pain, you know? So with the next arc, starting with issue 8, we'll have a very focused Jon Stewart story. And again, it puts him in a position that allows him to shine and show off what makes him unique and great as a Green Lantern. So to me, that's how I'm trying to approach the book.
2: Talk a little bit about Hal Jordan, because, you know, you've been writing him now for a while. As a character, what is it that draws you to him?
6: What I admire about Hal, and as a creator, you know, I think sometimes there'll be things you admire in your characters, because you don't see them in yourself, you know? And so what I admire about Hal is that he trusts his gut. And he goes with his gut he 's intelligent you know he 's not a dunce he 's a smart guy, but as you know they don 't just let anybody into an air Force aircraft you know cockpit but uh, for him, he trusts his instincts and he has to commit to his gut reaction because in the cockpit you don 't have time to think that you know the dog fights over so to me I, I appreciate that aspect of him, his spontaneity and also his nobility in a lot of ways you know like he's not carved out to be a leader in the the general looking down at the battlefield sense that the way John Stewart might be but Hal is a leader in the sense that he's charismatic and he's good at what he does and he's noble and he's honorable and people are drawn to that and will follow him so those are all things that I really enjoy about him. And we've got to talk about Sinestro of course
2: what you've done during the, in the absence of the Green Lantern Corps you've let the Sinestro Corps take over And Sinestro becomes very old, but then you do some real interesting things with him in Parallax. And now it seems like you're heading for an ultimate conflict between uh, Hal and Sinestro. And talk about Sinestro a little bit. Is he like Hal's opposite number?
6: What's kind of his game? Very much so. I mean, I I put him on the same level as I would as a Lex Luthor or a Joker in terms of the all-time great pantheon of DC villains. Sinestro's right up there. And he and Hal are opposites in a lot of ways. But as much as they are antagonists, as much as they go against each other, sometimes brutally, there's a respect and I, and I think even a love between the two of them. Because they were once partners. And it's almost like two brothers going at it. They can't stand each other, but there's still that respect and that love that they have for each other, and, and that's how I view them as characters, you know? Each of them is the other's greatest obstacle. And the only way they can achieve what they need to achieve is to go through the other. But they're not necessarily happy about it, you know what I'm trying to say? So just both of them, full of conviction, sure that the path they've chosen is the right one, even though those two paths are opposite. And this is what always puts them on a collision course with each other. I've got to ask you about Hal and Will, because there seems to be some growing
2: relationship between Hal Jordan and like, Will Power, that, that becoming that part of the, the Green, the Green Lantern part. Is that going to develop over time, or is that going to be something that we're going to see by the
6: end of this first arc? But we will see uh, a resolution to that in the very near future. But it is a subplot for somebody like Hal, who is spontaneous and does go with his gut, and is a test pilot in the cockpit and is all about taking risks. It becomes a question... Is it possible to push the envelope too far, and what happens when you do? And we're going to see the answer to that question real soon. Of course, you're probably going to put the Green Lantern
2: Corps back in charge, although I don't know what you're writing. I'm never quite sure what you're going to do. And that was one thing I wanted to talk about, the fact that, like a lot of what's going on in Rebirth, you guys are surprising us on a quite a regular basis. Is that one of your goals as a writer doing this book, is to surprise fans? Those of us who've been around for a long time, as well as the new ones, Are you going to show us things that
6: we might not have seen or expected? Oh, absolutely. I am guaranteeing you that in issue 8, issue 8, issue 9, issue 10, and issue 11, you are going to see things that you have not ever seen before. Which is not easy to do in a universe with such a history. But it's all about taking the pieces that are already there and applying them in new ways. That's kind of what I was saying earlier about how we're really tapping into a lot of the legacy of the DCU, and I think that's going to surprise people, but also how we we connect that, those legacy aspects with Green Lantern mythology. But even beyond that, yeah, as a writer, you, do you want to surprise your readers? Do you want to keep them on your toes? You know, sometimes it happens in ways you don't expect. But I mean, One example would be the beginning of Issue 4. We end Issue 3 with Hal clearly defeated by the Sinestro Corps. We open up Issue 4 with the Sinestro Corps arriving on world, celebrating the capture of the Green Lantern, yes. and all of a sudden they throw Guy on the ground. Yeah. I specifically wrote Issue 3 The Guy was only in it for two panels. In the very beginning of the issue, because I wanted the reader to forget about him. So then when he showed up in issue four, they were like, oh, that's right, Guy's out there too. Where's how? And it was like a double surprise. So it's nice when you're able to do those things. And, you, you know, the surprises don't always work. But it's nice when you do pull them off and the readership responds. Well, it didn't only surprise us, it surprised Sinister. Absolutely, great, yeah, and absolutely. A great, a great little bit.
2: One of the great things, of course, about the Green Lantern Corps is the number of different Green Lanterns. Are you going to be creating new Green Lanterns as you move forward with this, or are you going to continue to use the ones that have already been established?
6: Yeah, there will be some new ones. There's Sinestro Corps characters we've created. There will be some new Green Lanterns. But I also really want to focus a lot on a lot of the classic characters. Mm -hmm. So we've got some surprises coming up. One of them I won't reveal because I don't want to spoil it. But a big moment for a fan-favorite character in Issue 10 that I'm excited about which ties in with John Stewart's ability to look at the core from a different perspective like they're not just a bunch of Green Lanterns they are a bunch of aliens from different worlds that have their own unique skill sets and also are Green Lanterns and him being the guy that he is and the thinker that he is he's able to apply individual lanterns in unique ways that others might not think of you know so uh We'll definitely be seeing some of that.
2: I'll well, have to say, after Jeff Johns did Green Lantern, and he built all these cores and did all this stuff, and a lot of people thought that Jeff was really the premier Green Lantern writer, and, and too many people still is, but you're doing such a wonderful... He to <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, you're still doing a wonderful job of following up with that and, and keeping Green Lantern fans around and, and keeping us fascinated by what you're doing. So I think you're doing a terrific job doing this, and I can't wait to see what you're going to do moving forward.
6: Well, I appreciate all that. That's great of you to say. I mean, obviously... Everything I'm building, I'm building on top of a foundation that was laid by a lot of other extremely talented creators. Jeff Johns, uh, chief among them and, and most recent among them. But going all the way back in the long history of these characters, not just Green Lanterns, but in de- the writers and artists who developed the cosmic arena of the DCU, I'm building on top of all that stuff. So you just try to treat it with respect and come up with new stories and stay true to what those concepts were but apply them in new ways that, again, readers won't expect and they'll be surprised by. You're doing a wonderful job. Keep it up. I hope you get to do like 50,
2: 60, maybe 100 issues of Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps going forward. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's great to be talking with... John Sever Jr. Yeah, he knows his name better than I do, so we'll let him do that. So, he's the writer of Cyborg, which is one of my favorite comics that's out right now. For many reasons, what's it like to write Cyborg at this point? It's very exciting, and I'm very honored to be handling the character at this
7: time, because the character is going to be a very important part of the uh, DC universe, the DC movie universe. And now I'm in charge of his comic
2: book life, so it doesn't get any better than that. Which is cool. I've read the issues that you've done so far, including the one that just came out. Talk to me about the machine versus man part of Cyborg. Because, you know, there there have been times when he's gone all human, then he's uh, he's mostly machine. Is that conflict going to be important to him as he goes forward? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think
7: that's the big thing. I usually, one of the first questions I always ask myself about a character when I start writing him is what is he afraid of and when I asked myself that question about Cyborg he is afraid that he is more machine than man and possibly all machine and the twist that I'm bringing to it is that maybe that even means he's a little bit of a monster because maybe inherently machines aren't good so we're going to examine that from all kinds of different angles but when I say this I sometimes think I'm making it sound like the series is going to be very mopey and dreary Actually, the series is going to have a lot of humor, which I don't think any cyborg series has ever had. So there's no way anyone can predict what's going to happen with this series because I'm full of surprises.
2: Well, good. That, honestly, that's one of the things I've discovered about Rebirth is that you guys are surprising us on a very regular basis, which is great. As a reader, I love that. I love to be surprised. So that's great you're going to do that. I've got to ask you a question because I'm real interested in this kind of thing. I'm interested in diversity in comics. And I've always thought that Cyborg was really low-hanging fruit for DC, you know, wanting to have diversity and things like that in there. I get a little miffed when I see a, a person of color put into an existing uniform I would 10 times rather something like Cyborg, yeah. which to me is one of the more characters. This character was designed specifically to be him, black or not. Right. Talk to me about that. What's your feeling about him as a representative of how diversity could be done in comics?
7: Well, it's a double-edged sword because yes, he was a black character from the ground up. And so I think everyone knows that. And there's a strength there. The problem is that he was a black character at a time when black characters were a little bit symbolic and therefore a tiny bit untouchable in terms of having flaws and foibles and interesting quirks. So he, I think sometimes in the past has been a bit bland. So it's, uh, I think what's more exciting that's going on right now is diversity in the world of of the creators. Because while some of these characters have existed in the past, they haven't exactly been written by people of color. And I think that people of color writing them bring a whole new dimension to how the character ends up appearing on the page. And that's what's new and exciting that's going on right now. I can do things with uh, Cyborg that maybe a white writer might have been a little trepidatious about or worried about the PC correctness of the whole thing. I don't have to worry about that, really. And I can really make
2: this character
7: come to life with no restraints. So that's what's exciting.
2: See, I find that exciting too, because oftentimes when I've read Cyborg, he has been sort of stolid and you know, he's just been a big brute kind of guy. But to see what you're doing, especially in the three issues you've written so far, is just terrific stuff. He's much more human as a character, which I really love. As going forward with that, are you going to develop that? We'll get to the computer side in a minute here. But as his humanity develops, and as a black man, are we going to get to see him develop more along the lines of his humanity as a black man? Oh, absolutely, absolutely, oh, yeah. and part of that is his awareness of
7: what it means to be black in Detroit, in his environment. And that's one of the reasons why I've made it a mandate to make Detroit an important part of his world. We're defined by our environment. And I was given a character that is based in Detroit, and I'm going to use that. And that's going to help us all understand better who he is as a human being. He's got a lot of issues that he's got to deal with, and I'm not going to shy away from any of them.
2: They're all very important in his life right now. Yeah. Now, let's get to the computer side. Yeah. Obviously, you're going to have to be aware of computer technology, and he's got to kind of be ahead of the curve when it comes to technology. Are you, like, researching all this computer good things? Are you looking ahead to the kind of thing that he's going to be doing that maybe some of us can't do right now?
7: Well, the funny thing is that I have always been immersed in the world of computers, and I have always been a technophile. So I'm actually the right person to be writing this character because I follow technology since uh, the whole personal computing scene began in the, you know, kind of in the early 1980s. Even before I got Cyborg, I was already immersed in virtual reality and playing around with it. I own an Oculus Rift. I'm probably going to get a vibe at some point. So it's where my head rests normally anyway. I don't have to work at it. And yes, I'm going to be exploring all of these things. It's funny because... I've reached out to Ray Kurzweil, who came up with the whole concept of the singularity, the point, the tipping point at which man and, and technology merge. But I've reached out to him, and he might make an appearance in the comic book. So I
2: think I've got that pretty well covered. Very good. Now, let's talk about the Justice League. Yeah. Because if there's a pivotal person in the Justice League now, it's got to be Cyborg. Because as far as communication goes, as far as his understanding of what's happening around him... He seems to be the most perceptive of the group, and you know he could honestly be the leader at some point. In my opinion, Chris Batman would wouldn't stand for that probably right now, but at some point he probably could. What do you see him as? How does this function in the Justice League?
7: Well, I'm actually maybe not the best person to address this because I'm not writing the Justice League, but I will say that as we develop him more as a personality. And as his popularity grows, which I fully expect will happen during my run, I would see his role with the Justice League being increased because people will want to find out more about this character as he relates to all the other characters. So it's a bit of a generic answer, and that's only because I'm not in control of the Justice League. But it just follows logically. As the character becomes better known and better loved and better respected, he will have a better role in the Justice
2: League. i got to ask, of course, you've got Kilgore involved in this, who's a computer villain, one of the few computer villains that's ever been in DC that I'm aware of. And he's working for somebody, which is something that's going to be a real mystery as we go forward. I don't want you to spoil anything, but I'm just so fascinated to know who in the world would Kilgore work for. Well, you know, uh, (laughs) that is a little bit of a thing
7: that I'm going to tease out for a few issues. But a roundabout issue eight you're gonna really find out and it's gonna be a bit of a shock and it's gonna have a big impact yeah Kilgore is really the herald he's the one who says he's a coming and the big bad guy is going to be a very interesting integral part
2: of Vic's world and I can't tell you any more than that well don't don't spoil it I want to enjoy it when I read it so that's the way we want to do it Also, another character that's got a big role to play is is Cyborg's father. Yes. And there's a big twist that happens in the second issue that just came out. And of course, for those people who haven't read it yet, I want you to read the issue. But talk about the father and his role in Cyborg's life moving forward. Well, Cyborg's
7: relationship with his father is certainly an important part of his life and the complication. I think finding out in my run that at least at one time, his father thought that he might be a monster. That certainly hangs over Vic now and gives him a lot to think about. But I will say this. The whole Father Vic thing is not going to be the crux of my series because I really want to get Vic out from under his dad and I want him to have a life of his own and I want him to have new characters in his life and I want him to have a new world, a new environment that he's kind of playing around in. So, for those who are interested in the Father-Vic relationship, it's still there, and it's still going to be, a, you know, an important thing. But for those who who are maybe getting a little tired of it, you know, it, I mean, we all kind of have to move out from under our parent sooner or later. That's going to happen in my run as well. And so... People should
2: tune in to see, you know, should start their reading to see just how that's all going to develop. Well, I'm enjoying the book tremendously. It's it's what I've always hoped a cyborg book would be like. So I'm really excited about going to see what's going on in the future. Any quick tease you can give us that doesn't give away much as far as what's coming in the next couple issues?
7: Well, Wayne, let's see what I can
2: can tell you. There will be a a love interest. Well, that's good. That's the human side (laughs) we're back back, to again, which is excellent. You're doing a wonderful job, man. Keep it up. I can't wait to see what you're going to do with Cyborg.
7: Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for supporting and reading. And, and thank you.
2: All right. I'm talking right now with... What's your title at Mad Magazine, by the way?
8: I go by editor. I mean, I have a bigger longer title because i'm part of
2: time warner and warner brothers but editor's is fine and your name is john picarra okay mad magazine why don't for, if there's some person out there who hasn't heard of it and can't imagine that but why don't you describe what mad magazine actually is
8: mad magazine is a visual presentation of humor and satire we make fun of americana
2: politics and basically anything going on in the world one of the things i notice you do is you make like make fun of like comics-related TV shows and things like that.
8: Well, sure. I mean, because comics are really so popular now, Matt, we obviously make fun of things that are popular. You know, we, didn't, we don't do movies that bomb, you know? <laughs> so we love to do it because comics are so rich with characters, costumes, personalities. So it gives the writer and the artist a lot to play
2: off of when we do our parody. Now, of course, Matt has gotten known for several things over the years, Spy versus Spy... Uh, the folding back covers that you can do and they'll get a different image when you fold it and have are those the kind of things going to continue uh, is mad uh, you, the thing you have to of course combat is mad's been around for a long time and people know what to expect kind of when they pick up mad yes. are you going to do new things are we going to continue the old things but maybe put a new spin on them? how are you can do that yes to both yes we'll continue
8: and we'll continue to bring new things in as well i mean some of the new things we've done in recent years is the Fundalini pages, which is short takes up front in the book, that's five pages. The Mad Strip Club, which is bringing new talent, both art and writing, into the magazine. And even Planet Tad, which is a 12-year-old's blog written by uh, Tim Carville, who's one of the top comedy writers in the world today. But we still have Spy versus Spy. Now, we have Spy, but obviously it's not written and drawn by Antonio Prohias anymore, who died. It's by Peter Cooper. It's now in full color and it has Peter's sensibilities to it instead of Antonio's. It's got its roots in what Antonio does with the gadgets and the, the, the rivalry and things like that, but Peter brings his own sense of design, his own sense of humor to the strip. Now, this, the fold-in... It's funny you're talking about the fold The fold has only been done by one person in its entire history, Al Jaffe. Now, Al is 95. Oh, wow. And he's done every one of them, and we hope that Al never dies because <laughs> I hope I die before Al because I don't want to ever have to try to replace Al. But obviously someday that will come, and then we'll, we'll sit and we'll talk about, do we want to try to find somebody else to do a folding, or is the folding something that was uniquely mad, and now it's time to move on? It's funny how when Don Martin left the magazine, and he always did the back covers, we felt, oh God, this is a tremendous loss. But it also freed us, because at the time we were still in black and white, to do a lot more things on the back cover that we weren't doing, because Don was just always the default to do the back cover. So then we started doing a lot more old ad parodies and things like that and making better use of the color and using photography in a way that we weren't before. So everything
2: presents an opportunity as well as a loss. That's great. Now, as far as like getting the magazine these days, is it it still available on like newsstands and things like that? Yes, the problem is there aren't that many newsstands.
8: I mean, Barnes & Noble is always great. Walmart's, you can still find Mad. Most larger grocery chain stores. I tell people though, really, if you want MAD, Mad, subscribe. Go to madmagazine.com. You'll get it in the mail. It comes in a wrapper, so it comes nice. And you don't have to worry about missing an issue. And you'll save a lot of money. It's 20 bucks for a year as opposed to $5.99 for a single copy on the newsstand. And you're also helping the magazine because then we know, okay, we have a a core base of readers that are going to be there. And we're even talking now about enhancing the subscription process even more, both in terms of just the ease of which you can subscribe, but also the goodies you might get as our way of saying thanks for subscribing. So madmagazine.com or 1-800-4-MAD-MAG, both of which just get your credit card out for 20 bucks. It's a pretty good deal. And for two years, I think it's 30 bucks. So you're really starting to save a lot of money. And then we send you a really nice lithograph print of one of our classic covers too as our way of saying thanks. So yes, yeah, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe.
2: If they if I come away with one thing from this podcast, it's that I've talked to some of your listeners into subscribing. That's yeah, great. What about digital? Is uh, Mad ever going to go like to digital? Like, you know, because Comixology puts comic books out. We are. We are. We are on
8: Comixology. We're, we also just launched now very large on Magster, which is a very good platform for Mad. And we have an iPad app, which we're just we're going to be in, enhancing that in the coming months as well, where you can do things, you, you can do it now where you can fold in the fold in on the with a, a swipe of a finger and things like that. So, yes, and then, of course, we have our daily blog, which we use to do very topical material. If things happen at 10 o'clock in the morning, hopefully we have something up by 11, or 11 o'clock or, or noon on it
2: because comedy, like news, has become a 24-7 cycle. Uh, that's quite a challenge, though, isn't it? Because it used to be, you know, you've got a photograph of what was happening when the thing was printed, And now, all of a sudden, like you're saying, you have to react almost instantly to get things out there. It's really amazing. It really is amazing. But it's challenging, but it's fun. Because the other thing is
8: computers allow us to do a lot more. So we can generate visual material quicker, especially if it's going to be a manipulated photograph. We can't ramp up how fast we do our movie satires because at the end of the day, whether it's Tom Richmond or Herman Mahir or whoever, is going to draw five or six pages doing 40 likenesses you know, of all the different people in the movies. And the writer has to write it first, and that, that'll take a week or so, and then at least another two to three weeks for them to draw it. And then it's got to go to press, and then it's got to be distributed. So there's a much longer lag time on the movie satires and things like that as opposed to something we can do instantaneously. You know, if
2: Trump says something stupid, we can jump right on it. We've been jumping a lot lately, I might oh, add. <laughs> okay. Well, the whole, th- everybody in the campaign, my far as I'm concerned, yeah. is perfect humor fodder for you guys. So uh, I noticed that you've got something with you that has Batman in it. And I've noticed over the years, Batman's been a favorite character in, in Mad Magazine. He's been on there ever since the Adam West days.
8: Oh, yeah, and we, we, we even did Bat's Boy and Reuben back in the comic book days, you know, uh, when we were a comic book making fun of other comic books. This is the first of what will be a series of new books that Matt is doing, and it's pointing us in a new direction because we've never done something like this before. And it's a takeoff of an established popular book. So, what I'm holding in my hand is Goodnight Batcave, and it was uh, written by uh, Dave Corrado, a longtime Mad writer and editor, and drawn by Tom Richmond. And uh, it's a mashup of the classic takeoff of the kid's book Goodnight Moon, but we have Batman in it, and we also have Mad Sensibilities and Snark. and visualness so it's fun if you're four years old you'll enjoy it it's fun for the parent who's reading it to the four-year-olds rather than just the same goodnight moon all the time and it's also fun for a longtime fan who might not otherwise be exposed to something like this so we're, we're hoping in fact there's tom richmond standing right over there the artist of it he's waving to us now so we have very high hopes for it it's been very well received by the book selling community and it goes on sale October twenty fifth and you can get it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble, any anywhere really. What about like local comic shops going through Diamond
2: and stuff? What, could it be available that way? I believe it is available through Diamond and the in the in the directs, yes. Because it's just in time for the holidays that's gonna come out and what that's a perfect yeah. yeah huh?
8: Occasionally even we get something right. <laughs>
2: now is this like the first of a series? Is yes. This?
8: yes. So to this one. there are two other books being done now which are also takeoffs on kids books and then i think you're going to see even a further what we call brand extension with existing characters and new characters so we're very excited about this we think it's a good opportunity for
2: Matt to have a bigger footprint in the humor in the humor world well not only that if you're interested in batman and you come to see something like this it might drive you to the magazine if you enjoy it exactly exactly hopefully they will in fact i think there's a in the front of the editors did their job right.
8: Uh, there's a little thing where it says where
2: you could subscribe right in the front of the book. Now, I've got to ask, as part, since satire is such a big deal, and, and of course being part of Warner Brothers, you probably do more satires of Warner Brothers things than you might other companies. No,
8: totally yeah. not true. Oh,
2: okay. there's oh. no, in fact, sometimes it's easier with other companies
8: than it is with Warner Brothers. Really? Because Warner Brothers, they have stars under contract. And if we do something that pisses off the stars, they don't come to us, they come to, their, to Warner Brothers exactly. But we really don't get much of that. We look at the grosses, we look at what's popular, and that really dictates the editorial direction of the magazine in many ways. I mean, the old cliche that we've used for years is, man is like a funhouse mirror that we hold up to society. So if the Batman vs. Superman movie is very big and make a lot of money, we go after that. If it's a Marvel movie, we'll do that. There's a very popular show on Netflix now called Stranger Things. We're going after that uh, in one of the upcoming issues because it's so popular. So we try to keep our finger on the pulse of what's going on, and hopefully the readers enjoy it along the way.
2: Well, it's like advertising the the TV show or the movie or something. When you do that, it's like a commercial for them. So you think that they would like to be involved. Most of them do. I mean, we
8: did a cover a couple of months ago with Gordon Ramsay on it, and he loved it. He put it on his website. He plugged the hell out of it. Most people do feel that way. Occasionally, I think what happens on a lower level, if we're doing a movie and it's a lower level person, let's say, Oh, no, you can't do this. Please, you know, they'll they'll try to stop it. When, in fact, the big people, like the Lucases and the Spielbergs, can't wait for it to happen. In fact, both Lucas and Spielberg have always bought the original art from the covers and the insides. And same thing with J.J. Abrams, another big Mad fan.
2: They love being spoofed. They love to to be part of it. Well, I'm just kind of interested because the, the, the whole interest of Mad is... We need more humor in our lives, I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> the way things are going, it's just crazy stuff going on in this world. Well, we're here to provide it, working 24-7 to uh, try to do it. I mean, the new issue, which just, just came out on sale now. Wow, Politics 2016, it says on it, and it's got uh, Alfred E. Newman as sort of an Uncle Sam, but he's in an, an insane that's asylum. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, And
8: I think a lot of people feel that's where politics belongs these days.
2: <laughs> yeah, and this is our last issue
8: before the election. So it's, it's a lot of politics, a lot of political humor. And we have a piece about Hillary. Uh, take off on My Little Pony called My Little Phony. And then we have uh, Shopkins, which are very popular, these little characters. We did Trumpkins for Trump. So we're an equal opportunity offender. And then after this, we have our big end-of-year issue, which is the 20 dumbest people events and things of the year. And that's always the best seller of the year. I should tell you, last year we put Trump on the cover, and it doubled our newsstand sales. Wow. It just doubled our newsstand sales. He is the gift that keeps giving in terms of comedy.
2: So you would like to see him be president, just for the magazine, sake? Oh, boy, there's a, there's a Sophie's <laughs> Choice of comedy right there. <laughs> you
8: know, <laughs> as an American, uh, as a comedy writer. Uh, but you know what? I have full faith that if Hillary becomes president, and Hillary and Bill are in the White House, they will do a fine job of stupid things that we can we can make fun of, and, and we will have four years of fruitful comedy and satire. Is there any subject you guys won't touch? No. Now, having said that, we don't do victim humor. So in the 80s, when Reagan was there, and AIDS really was becoming a big story, we didn't do jokes about people with AIDS. However, we were merciless on Reagan, who wouldn't even say the word AIDS. That's the type of thing we go after. We go after people in power. We don't punch down. We go after the people who can make change and affect change
2: and don't for political reasons or, or stupid bias that's really where we go well it's interesting because it sounds like you've been with the magazine for quite a long time remembering all these good things how long have you been with Matt? I just passed the 36 year mark wow yes did uh, you go up the, 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 the levels? did you start I out did. on the bottom? I started as
8: a freelance writer and then I became an associate editor and the first person they hired in 24 years and I was really in the right spot at the right time it was a lot of luck and then, five years after that, Al Felstein, who was a long-time editor, retired, I became co-editors with Nick Meglin, and then Nick retired, and, you know, they left me holding the, holding the,
2: whatever you want to call it, holding the bag. Where do you see MAD going in the future, are, are, there, are you going to continue that, are there new areas you'd like to go to? Yes, there are a couple that I can not talk about now that you're
8: going to see that are very exciting in other mediums, different from print and different from digital completely. That we're working on now, and I'm hoping to be able to announce something maybe in the first quarter of next year on that. And then, of course, the new book series that we're doing, and I think that could really be big because I think as we do these books, we're going to start to create new properties that could then lend themselves to television and movies and digital and, and, and all the other things. So we're, we're trying to expand the MAD brand out. And of course, not many Americans know this, but we have many foreign editions throughout the world.
2: So MAD really has a global imprint, for better or worse. Probably most people would say worse. Well, you guys had a TV show for a little while on Cartoon Network. Oh, yes. And I missed that. Is is that going to come back on you? Well, right now we have a show on CW, which was a rebirth of
8: the old Saturday night show that we did on Fox, which ran for 13 years. But it never got the attention that SNL got, but it was hugely popular and hugely successful. We made a lot of money on it. And they did a. Over the summer, they did a reunion show of that show on CW, and it got such good ratings that they scrambled and put together eight shows. So I think they're running the eight. They may have just about finished them now, and I think if the ratings are good, look for that show to come back
2: to CW. Well, now's the time to go mad, sounds like, so things are great. already gone mad. I mean, sometimes I think that we're trying to catch up. Well, keep it up. You're doing a great job.
8: Oh, thanks so much.
1: Before we wrap it up this week, I wanted to thank the following people for making this episode happen. The folks at New York Comic Con who granted me a press pass. Alex Lobato and the Gateway City Comics folks who helped make the trip possible. And the people at DC Comics and BH Impact. Particularly Charlotte Sandler and her great crew who always work with the press so well every New York Comic Con. Thanks to everybody for making this happen. Next week, a special Halloween episode. So don't miss it. But until then... Keep reading your comics.